0: Started a series a couple of weeks back on uh, that we've entitled "God and Miracles," and we've used uh, Psalm 77 verse 14 as the text scripture. Really, it's more than it's, it's nothing more than a jumping-off point for us. It says, "Thou art the God that doeth miracles." King James says "wonders," but it's the same word that's translated "miracles" in other places in the Old Testament. Thou art the God that doeth miracles. Now, we've spent some time and we've talked about the creation a little bit, and and, and of course, you can't. Um, there's no way you could spend too much time talking about any of these things you could take any one of the the things that God's done and talk forever on it I guess but we talked a little bit about creation we've talked a little bit about the miracles involved in creation and then we talked last week a little bit about uh, about Pharaoh and and uh, the miracles that took place in uh, in Egypt and I want to go back to some of that this morning we laid a foundation last week for um uh the the misnomer that so many people have and it comes uh from a combination of things, I guess. One, it comes from the the translation, the King James translation itself, uh, a lack of understanding of most people's parts for what Dr. Young, Robert Young, who was the foremost uh, Hebrew authority in his day, uh, he's the author of Young's Analytical Concordance. It's not so much in use nowadays. Most everybody goes to the Strongs, but but it was before the Strongs, and as a result, it was the number one reference uh, book or material resource available for many, many years. Dr. Young said of the, the Hebrew, he said that there is a, uh, a permissive tense in the Hebrew that doesn't translate into the King James. Now, the reason it doesn't translate into the King James, it can translate into the English, but not the King James because the King James translation is a transliteration. And what that means is it's as close to a word-for-word translation of the, of the Hebrew in the Old Testament, the Greek in the New Testament as possible. And so the King James translates a lot of things in the causative sense, which should be in the permissive sense. And, uh, and, and Pharaoh, the story of God and dealing with uh, Pharaoh through Moses is one of those. Because the King James says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But in many other scriptures, and I don't know why these are ignored. And uh, the one about God hardening Pharaoh's heart, the two or three times it speaks there. And is translated in that manner. Those are the ones that people seem to, to hook on to. And ignore the ones where it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But the Bible tells us specifically if, you, if you're willing to do the study, and we spent some time on this last Sunday morning, about Pharaoh is the one that hardened his heart. He could have changed. He could have determined to do something otherwise anywhere along the way. And as a matter of fact, he did. He relented several times and then recanted in that. And after the trouble was over, the plague had ended, then he turned back to Moses and said, well, forget it. All bets are off now, that type of thing. I think another reason, uh, the second reason outside of the translation itself that... Um, uh, that people have a wrong idea about this is because uh, for many years it's been taught that God is the one that's the author of sickness and disease and he's the author of tragedy and every any bad thing that happens, God is, since he's God and since he's supreme and since he's sovereign, he's just behind everything. But um, Jesus told us a different story. John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus said, "'The thief cometh not but for to kill, to steal and to destroy, and I'm come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly.'" Jesus said there were opposing forces. Jesus said the devil is the one behind killing and stealing and destroying and God's the one that's behind doing good and having life that the life he's talking about is eternal life, not just everlasting life, but eternal life and that we might have that life more abundantly. Consequently, uh, we need to understand that miracles are designed for one and only one purpose. Well, uh, that's not true. Let me back up and say this a different way. It's not just one purpose for miracles, but the primary purpose for miracles, certainly miracles do whatever they're intended to do. And God's by the one behind the miracles, and he's the one that's that's the uh, uh, not only the author of it, but the director of the miracle for whatever it's supposed to accomplish. But the primary goal for a miracle is not just the event that takes place. It's not just the thing that's accomplished. It's the communication from God to man about who he is. Miracles are intended to communicate. Now turn back with me to uh, Numbers chapter 14, and I want to talk to you a little bit about this. This morning I want to talk to you about the Exodus miracles. Now we'll go over some of the stories, some of the things that we covered last week, but it was really important uh, in my thinking that we laid a foundation of Pharaoh being the one in charge of his own will, Pharaoh being the one that decides whether or not he's going to accept the communication of God's miracle working power to him and what result it will have in his life. And so today I want to talk about the Exodus miracles, and that's really the way I'm, uh, I'm planning to go with this series. I'm going to talk about the Exodus miracles. I'm going to talk about the wilderness miracles. I'm going to talk about the miracles of Elijah, the miracles of Elisha, and so forth. And then finally get to the miracles of Jesus. I don't know any other way to categorize them other than the, either the times or the people that God used for these miracles that he performed. But in Numbers chapter 14, let me set the stage for you here. The children of Israel have been delivered. They came through the Red Sea. You remember the story of God parting the Red Sea. We'll talk about that a little bit later in the service. And they come on the other side. God delivers to them them, um, his willingness to show his goodness and show his mercy to them. And they come to the edge of the promised land. He's given them the law of Moses. The Ten Commandments have been given miraculously as well. They come to the edge of the promised land that uh, that he directed them to. Uh, to, that, they would, that he would take them to Before he ever delivered them from Egypt And the twelve spies go in Ten of the twelve spies come back With what the Bible refers to as an evil report They say we can't do what God said we can That's always evil in God's sight We can't do it God said we can but we can't do it In our own eyes We're not able so we're not going to be able to do it As a result The children of Israel The congregation The, the multitude the uh, Probably three to four billion people that were, um, that were there. That came out of um, uh, Egypt. Joined together with the majority report. Which isn't always right folks. You need to understand that. The majority report is usually wrong. But anyway they joined in with the majority report. And so they were sentenced to 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Because they refused to obey God. It wasn't because God wanted it that way. God wanted them to go in. But they chose. Just like Pharaoh chose to harden his heart. They chose to harden their hearts. To the things that they had seen. And to the goodness and the greatness of God. Now I want to pick up the the reading here in Numbers chapter 14 in verse 21. This is after the congregation of Israel has already messed up. God's going to tell them in just a few verses about how they're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness. Or tell Moses about it. He'll relay the story. But beginning in verse 21. uh, God speaking he said. But as truly as I live all the earth shall be filled with the glory of God. Now. Stop and think about that. We read that casually and we read that simply. And God just says, as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. But why is God talking about how truly he lives? Moses doesn't, he's talking to Moses here. Moses doesn't have any question about God being alive. God's spoken to him out of the burning bush. He's shown him the the signs and wonders and miracles in Egypt and so forth. Moses is not in doubt about whether God's alive. God is not saying as surely as I am alive. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about something that's relative to his kind of life. Well, What kind of life does God have? I don't know any other kind but the God kind of life. I mean, it's not like he got life from somebody else. So when God says, as truly as I live, something shall be, what does he mean? He's saying, this is the way that it is. It's the way that it always is because the God kind of life is eternal. And he says, this is the way that it will always be because it's unchanging, because the God kind of life is unchanging. He's saying, this is a law that you can write in stone. This is the way that it's going to be no matter what happens, no matter what anybody thinks, no matter what happens between now and then, no matter what the devil does, no matter what your friend does, no matter what your mama does, this is the way it's going to be. Now what does he say about the way it's going to be? All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Would you consider that to be done yet? I wouldn't. There's still people that haven't been reached. There's still people that have been reached that don't know about the power of God. They've been reached with theory and they've been reached with doctrine and church teaching and so forth. But they don't know the power of God. When God talks about his glory being known in the earth. That says power and goodness to me. Doesn't it, you? Notice what God said no matter what, this is the way it's going to be. All the earth, all the earth. That means in ISIS controlled territories, that means in Chinese territories. That means behind any political barrier, behind any religious or, or, or other type of boundary or door being closed or anything else, all the earth. I'm pretty sure God knows what all the earth means. Don't you? All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Folks, you need to understand something. As bad as some of the stuff looks like in the Middle East and in other parts of the world and so forth, it is nothing compared to the glory and the power of God. And there's no point in us as Christians or us as the church getting all twisted up about, well, what's happening and what's going on in politics. And my goodness, who's the, the, the next president possibly could be and, and how good can he be? And oh, my goodness, is this all we've got to choose from or whatever else you might be thinking? All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. I wish our choices were better, too, but all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Now, how sure is that? As truly as God lives. You can't get anything stronger than that to swear by. Most people think of swearing as being cussing, but but that's not what it is. God is swearing by himself. As truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all these men, he's talking about the ten spies and that went into the uh, land of uh, Canaan. And came back. Because all these men which have seen my glory. Okay. Now God's defining his terms. Because all these men which have seen my glory. And my miracles. Well why would glory mean anything other than the miracles. And the things that they had seen. As examples in Egypt. That's what he says. He says all the earth will be filled with this kind of glory. Because all these men. Which have seen my glory and my miracles. Which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness. And have tempted me now these ten times. And have not hearkened to my voice. What are miracles designed for? To get you to obey God's word. Miracles are thrilling but they're not sent to thrill you. Miracles are displays of great power but they're not to get you to focus on the power. Miracles are designed to communicate one thing and that is how true God's word is and therefore how worthy it is to act on it. That's what miracles are designed to communicate. That's why God does miracles. That's why he reaches from outside of time and space into time and space and does spectacular things. So that you'll hearken to his word. Let me read again. Verse 21, as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord because all these men which have seen my glory and my miracles which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tempted me now these ten times and have not hearkened to my voice. Surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers. Neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. Then he talks about but Caleb and Joshua, they'll because they took a, a differing view, they stood against the rest of the group and said, we can do what God said, they'll go in. And they did, 40 years later, but they did. They were hindered for 40 years, but they went in. Folks, what I want you to see is, God held these men responsible for not hearkening to his word because they had seen and knew about the miracles. Now, when you get to talking about the, 12, the um, uh, 10 plagues in Egypt... A lot of times people have a hard time with that because they say, "Well, now, wait a minute. If John 10.10 10 says the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy but Jesus said I am come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. James one twenty one says God is the father of lights in whom there is no variables, neither variables, variableness, neither shadow of turning. He only gives good things. Every good gift comes from above, from the father of lights and so forth. If God's only good, then how could he do these plagues in Egypt? If God doesn't kill, then how come people were killed in Egypt? If God only does good things and the devil only does bad things, why do these things take place? Now, don't look at me in that tone of voice. I know you've had those same thoughts. That's the way the devil tries to bring confusion to all of us. He tries to deceive us in all of this. And the reason for that is very simple. You need to understand that just as the miracles of the Bible are spoken of, miracles of Exodus are spoken of many, many times throughout the Scripture, particularly in the Psalms, They were guideposts, they were a foundation stone for Israel's reason to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when the devil tries to come and say, yeah, but if God's only good, why did he do these things? He's trying to blind the minds of the church from the purpose for these miracles, why these things were done. Now you know as well as I do that the first time Moses went to, uh, to Pharaoh and said, The God of the Hebrews has appeared to me and said, let my people go. Moses could have, uh, Pharaoh, excuse me. Pharaoh could have had a conversation about this and said, now, wait a minute. What, how do you know this was a God? Moses could have told him about the burning bush. Moses could have explained to him what God said and different things like that. Pharaoh could have reasoned with Moses and come to a decision, but he didn't. Pharaoh said in Exodus chapter 5 and verse 2, who is the Lord that I should hearken unto him? That's Pharaoh's question. Who is this God? You need to understand that Pharaoh issued the challenge. Pharaoh said, who is your God that I should listen to him because I'm considered to be a God and Egypt has a gazillion gods. What makes your God better than my gods? What makes your God better than me? He's the leader of the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. Why should I listen to him? Folks, you need to understand something. And that is where the plagues were designed as God's execution of judgment upon the gods of Egypt. Let me prove it to you. In Exodus chapter 12 and verse 12, this is uh, God talking to Moses about the, uh, the Passover. He says, for I will go through the, through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt... I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Who's he executing judgment on? The people? Because God just doesn't like Egyptian people? No, he's executing judgment against the gods of Egypt. Numbers chapter 33 and verse 4. Here's the recounting. Moses recounting what God did in Egypt. Mostly at his hand. For the Egyptians buried all their firstborn, which the Lord had smitten among them. Upon their gods also the Lord executed judgments. Judgments. Exodus chapter 18, this is after Moses leads the children of Israel out of uh, bondage. They cross the Red Sea over into the land of Midian, where his uh, father in law Jethro is. Here's Jethro's testimony after having heard everything that took place in Egypt. He said, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. Exodus chapter 15, here's Moses' song of deliverance, or part of it. He sings in this song, who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? See, that has reference to Egypt's gods. That has reference to God showing himself as to be the most high. Who is like thee? Majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 23. And one, one nation in the earth is like thy people, even like Israel, whom God went to redeem for a people to himself and to make him a name and to do for you great things and terrible For thy land, before the people which thou redeemest to thee from Egypt, from the nations and their gods. You need to understand something, folks. God was executing judgment upon the gods of Egypt. It was Pharaoh's and the Egyptian people's choice whether or not they're going to hang on to their gods. He's executing judgment upon their gods. He's showing to the people. He's showing to Pharaoh and he's showing to the Egyptian people. I am the great God. I am the creator of the universe. I'm the one that controls the heavens. I'm the one that controls the the earth. I'm the one that can control through my mighty hand. My signs and wonders and miracles. I am the great God. Who you're worshiping is nothing. And that's what the plagues were about. Now what happened? first thing that happened before the plagues ever began was when Moses goes in before Pharaoh here's the pre-plague sign or miracle and that was when Moses took his rod and cast it down and it became a snake you remember that why is that well have you ever noticed anything if any of you are are, uh, Egyptian history buffs or anything like that if you know anything about it if you've even seen the King Tut exhibit that they had traveling through the country a couple of years ago You'll notice that all of the, the artwork and all of that stuff has the face of the Pharaoh with a snake coiled on his head. The cobra was the, was the sign of Pharaoh's authority. It's in all the, the, the carvings on the, the temples and the, the other places in Egypt and things that we've seen ourselves firsthand. It's all over the place. Why? Because the cobra, the snake itself, was a sign of Pharaoh's power. Now, what did Moses do? Moses cast down his stick... And it became a snake. A signification of Pharaoh's power. The problem was the, the magicians did the same thing. They threw their rods down. And they became snakes too. But then what happened? Moses' snake ate theirs. And then he took it by the tail and it became a stick again. What was that a sign of? It was God showing Pharaoh. And folks you need to understand this. Pharaoh could have stopped right there and said. Wow your stick ate their sticks. I realized that That snake. That you turned your stick into. Is a representative of Pharaoh's power. It's the representation of the power of Egypt. Through me. Maybe there is something to this. But he didn't. He says oh that's just a parlor trick. Why? Because he's used to parlor tricks. He's used to his magicians being able to do something. Now why are his magicians able to do something. And, And remember folks. This is what Moses was schooled in. Moses grew up in the palace. Not under this Pharaoh, certainly. Probably not even under one of his forefathers. It's a new Pharaoh. It's Pharaoh probably of a different line than when Moses was around and fished out from the Nile River. But he's been schooled in these things. He's been schooled in the arts of Egypt. He's been schooled in occult stuff. He knows all about these things and how they work and, and so forth. And Pharaoh just looks at it as a magic trick. Why? Because he's used to the magicians tricking the people. Not him, but the people. The magicians weren't there to trick Pharaoh. If the magicians could fool and trick Pharaoh, they'd become Pharaoh themselves. They could trick him out of his throne. But he's used to the magicians tricking the people. That didn't work. So what happens then? Then the first plague is turning the Nile to to blood. This was a plague against the god Hopi. The spirit of the Nile was uh, in. In the flood is called uh, the arrival of Hopi. Every year, when the rain would come, the one time of year when the rain would come, um, the Nile would overflow, and it would uh, uh, cause the land to be irrigated. And it's the only land. It's the only rain. The only irrigation they had. And so there were reservoirs that were that were created out in the outskirts of the floodplain. And what they hoped for every year was they hoped for a big rain and so the, the Nile River would overflow and, uh, and it would get to these reservoirs on the outskirts of the, uh, the flood plain and fill the reservoirs and, and then they'd use that water for uh, irrigation for the remainder of the year for the crops. Well, that was called the arrival of Hopi. He was called the, the spirit of the Nile. He was considered to be the spirit of the Nile in the floods. Now, they had another god and, and that was uh, Osiris. And the Nile River was considered to be his bloodstream. Now, I don't know how this stuff works. And I don't even want to study it out to try to figure it out, to be honest with you. But, they, but, but Egypt had at least nine gods, nine chief gods. Remember there were ten plagues? Really nine plagues and one death of the firstborn. Each one of these nine plagues was a, a, a particular and specific affront to one of the chief gods of, of Egypt. The first one was Hoppy. Now, there was a secondary uh, effect of to this, too, and that is there was a second god. It was a fish god called Hayyamet, And when all the fish died, that was a front to that god, but she's not a, a major god. But you need to realize that this affected when the Nile turned to blood, which blood was a particular affront to the Egyptian people, too. It's a slap in the face to one of the gods that they that they worship. Now, let me read something to you. Um, this is uh, something that was discovered, and uh, there's a lot of ancient writings like this that have been found in Egypt. Here's an Egyptian prayer that they used to pray to the Nile, the god of the Nile. Praise to thee, O Nile, that issueth from the earth and cometh to nourish Egypt, that watereth the meadows. He that Ra hath created to nourish, nourish all cattle, Ra is the the big cheese, that giveth drink to the desert places which are far from water, When the Nile floodeth, offering is made to thee. Cattle are slaughtered for thee. A great oblation is made for thee, which is true of all the other gods as well, not just this one. Um, All ye men extol the nine gods and stand in awe of the might which his son, the Lord of all, hath displayed. Even he that maketh green the two river banks, thou art verdant, O Nile, thou art verdant. He that maketh man to live on his cattle and the cattle on his meadow. Now what this is talking about is they're praising Pharaoh who is a representation of all of these gods. Pharaoh is the one whom the, uh, the supreme god Ra operates and, and Pharaoh was also called Amun-Ra, the son of Ra. And so anything that, uh, that happened, anything good that happened is supposed to be ascribed to the Pharaoh in his working together with one of these nine chief gods that caused them to have crops. Now when the, the fish died in the sea in the um, uh, the Nile River the Nile turned to blood, and it said it was that way for seven days, which means everything that was there, every every living thing in the, in the water died. I mean, for seven days. If it had just been for half a day or something like that, maybe something could have survived. But for seven days, nothing could survive. That would be like one of the major uh, legs of their economy... Being wiped out. Now you could take any part of our economy. You could say if the if the oil industry was wiped out, look at how that would cripple America. If the if the fishing industry was wiped out, look at how that would cripple American economy. Look at the the uh, the economic safeguards that are put in place with stocks trading and stuff like that. If it starts dropping too fast, man, these computerized things are supposed to kick in and keep it from dropping, the bottom dropping out, and all that kind of thing. Why? Because the the we realize that if the economy starts tanking. Everything goes down with it. And you need to realize this. When God's executing judgment upon the gods of Egypt. He's destroying their economy. It's the byproduct. It's not what God's trying to do. He's not trying to impoverish the nation. He's giving them a chance each and every time. He's giving them a chance. Maybe you ought to listen to me. Maybe you ought to pay attention to the God of the Hebrews. But every time. Either he or the people relent harden their hearts and say that's it forget it so this is a god this is a judgment against the gods of egypt the second plague which was bringing frogs from the nile was a judgment against heket the frog-headed goddess of birth now frogs were sacred to the egyptians i know it sounds stupid i sound I, i sound weird to myself even saying it but it's true frogs were sacred you didn't kill a frog You might have helped detour it from your house or something like that, but you did not kill a frog. Nobody stepped on frogs. They were considered sacred and, and uh, a part of the God, this Hecate God, the frog-headed goddess of birth. When God had the frogs invade every part of the homes of the Egyptians, and if you go in Exodus chapter 8 and see what he says, he said, they'll be in your bedchambers and in your bed. He said they'll not only be in your kitchen, they'll be in your pans, the the pans that you cook with. They've got frogs in their food. They've got frogs in their bed. They've got frogs everywhere. Well, what is that? Under normal conditions, people might have thought, wow, this means the goddess of birth is bringing good news to my home. But not when they pile up in like heaps and they die and start stinking and everything else. Everything God does, he's doing to slap in the face of the Egyptians, how big is your God now? And that's what this is all about. It's about judgments against the gods of Egypt. The next one was uh, the plague of lice or the, the, the interpretation of the word is a little little vague. It might be gnats. We don't know. It could be one or the other. But anyway, this was a judgment against Set, the god of the desert. Now, the, the thing that's distinctive about this is this is where the magicians say, we can't duplicate this one. We can't turn... Na- uh, we can't make gnats from, or lice from dust. Until then, they were able to duplicate the blood and the Nile. Before then, they were able to duplicate the frogs. And that's what you want. You want more blood and more frogs so the magicians show themselves to be big and, and you know mighty. But this was a different thing. This is where they said in Exodus chapter 8, and verse 19, this is where the magician said, this is the finger of God. Now, what's the purpose for this? He's executing judgment, God's executing judgment by these miracles and wonders upon the gods of Egypt. And it worked when it came to the magicians. They finally said, wait a minute, this is really God. We've got experience with this stuff. We've got experience in what people call the the workings of the gods of Egypt. Because a lot of it's parlor tricks on our part. We know this is really God. This is not some fake thing. I don't know how they thought the the frogs in the blood was fake. If they did at all. But they said this is the real deal. This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh didn't listen to that either. Now what were the magicians if not advisors to Pharaoh? And they give their advice. This is really God. What's the implication behind that? You might want to listen to this guy. Might want to pay attention to Moses. Maybe setting up a meeting with Moses wouldn't be a bad idea. Find out just exactly what does he want now? They said, this is the finger of God. The next one, the fourth plague was a plague of flies. It was a judgment on either. There's one of two which uh, gods of Egypt which were both depicted as flies. One is either re, re, I'm not sure how you say it, or Utachit. Yeah, the god Utachit. Uh, and... Uh, I don't, I've got to be careful about making comments on this one. I think I'll leave this one alone. But both of these gods were depicted as flies. Now, we don't know what they were supposed to be good for. There's no evidence in, in Egyptian, Egyptian history or archaeological finds or anything like that that tell us what they were other than just their names, and they were fly gods. Uh, why would you worship flies? But anyway, the devil will make you do stupid things. The fifth plague was the death of the livestock. Now, if you remember in that Egyptian prayer that we read earlier, livestock were uh, were watered by the Nile. It speaks specifically of the cattle of Egypt being watered by the Nile. Well, you can readily imagine that if the Nile River, which is turned to blood for seven days, would have a great impact not only on the, the crops, not only on the drinking water, but also on the livestock. We're talking about a real big hit to the economy. The fifth plague was the death of the livestock and it was a judgment on the goddess Hathor and the god Apis who were both depicted as cattle. Now, you may not know this. I didn't until I did some study on it some years ago. But in Egypt, there have been great cemeteries, huge cemeteries where cattle have been embalmed and buried. And you remember that uh, then when uh, Israel rebelled uh, and uh, Moses was up on the mountain getting the, the Ten Commandments... They made the golden calf. Well, that's a worship of one of these cattle gods. We don't know which one. There was not one specified. But it's the worship of one of these cattle gods. So they considered him to be pretty big cheese, pretty big deal. If they're going to make a, a, a golden image like that, a golden calf and so forth. So there were great cemeteries of embalmed cattle that had been excavated. And the symbol of the bull was the symbol of Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh went by many things because he's trying to take credit for everything. You can see that a lot in politics nowadays. You know, the sun shines and somebody says, oh, what, well, did they do a great job? That's a little bit of an exaggeration, but not much. Well, this is the way Pharaoh was. Pharaoh wanted to take credit for everything that was good, and so he was symbolized by a whole lot of things. One of them was a the bull. Now, here's a, there's a hymn to Ammon, which has uh, been uh, unearthed and uncovered, and it's, uh, in, in this hymn, it's kind of difficult to distinguish whether it's talking about uh, Pharaoh or, or literally the bull the title is the adoration of Amon ra the bull of Heliopolis chiefest of all gods the good God the beloved who giveth life to all that is warm and to every good herd so what does God do God kills her cattle not a big deal God doesn't have to work up his power he says well okay if you don't believe who I am yet then let your cattle die and the cattle die. The sixth plague were the boils. And it was a judgment against several gods over health and disease. One was Sekhmet. One was Sunu. One was Isis. And one, one, one was Imhotep. Now I don't want to get into a lot of side issues and stuff like this. But Imhotep was probably Joseph. See if Joseph. If the Bible story of Joseph going into Egypt. And then becoming the prime minister of Egypt is true. Then he's got to be somewhere in Egyptian history. When we went to, uh, uh, in 2000, I think it was 2007, we took a group of uh, people, uh, There was about 20 of us, I guess. We went to uh, Israel, Egypt, and Jordan. And we went to some of these places. Now, the reason I wanted to, to go to Egypt is I wanted to go to the Egypt of Moses and Joseph. And so we went to several places. We went to uh, the first um, the first pyramid that was built in Saqqara. And, uh, and, and that was... It, it, there's a lot of evidence that shows that Imhotep came up with the idea of building with stone, building with bricks. Came up with the, the notion of how to build bricks and, and so forth. Now, what most people don't know is that the story of Imhotep is almost parallel to the story of Joseph. The difference is, instead of the Bible story of Joseph interpreting Pharaoh's dream, Imhotep's the one that has the dream and Pharaoh interprets that because that makes Pharaoh the big dog. But Imhotep was not of Egyptian heritage. He was of a foreign nationality of some type which begs the question how in the world could somebody that's not an Egyptian become come into such a great position of power and authority and so there's a lot of things a lot of similarities to uh, um, uh, parallels really between Joseph and Imhotep and one of the things that they say about uh, Imhotep was that he had healing power when he was there in Egypt that he would uh, he would wear a coat and that this cloak would be taken to the sick and one time it was even uh, there's a, a ancient Jewish uh, writing it's not uh, it's not canonized or anything but there's an ancient jewish writing where joseph sent his coat to his father jacob israel jacob who was also named israel and and brought healing to his father and so there's uh, there there are different kinds of things like this throughout egyptian history that that point to the the possibility i think it's a probability but nevertheless the possibility that imhotep was joseph when we were in uh, in egypt in 2007 uh, we had a, a real neat guy that was our Egyptian guide, great big guy, blustery guy, knew a lot about Egyptian history, the archaeological finds and stuff like that, and, uh, and he, was, um, uh, he was well-spoken, he was uh, well-read, and, and had a lot of connections with uh, the antiquities uh, group and the museum there in Cairo and, and that kind of stuff, and so... I would take our people, and I prepared a little book for everybody before we went. And so we'd get to these places, and, and so they had a chance to either read ahead of time and, and find out what was going on. Some people brought their books with them, so I explained to them what what some of the historical finds could possibly mean regarding the the pyramid at Zakkara and Joseph and and, and and that kind of stuff. And um, uh, and and I caught him uh, listening in. I'm I'm talking to the to the group and. And that kind of stuff. And it wasn't, wasn't like we had formal type things. But I was talking to a couple of people. And I said. Now, see over there. Th- this is the place where. where um, uh, they think that. Um, Joseph might have stored the grain. Where everybody had to come to. There were. Uh, oh let's see. What's the number. I think there were 13 gates. But only one of them worked. So it was purely for defensive purposes. And stuff like that. And they've discovered a lot of stuff. In, in the ground. And, and uh, traces of grain. And stuff like that. Which might point to the storage place for where joseph was you know keeping all the the good stuff and uh so anyway i was talking to some people and i happened to turn and look behind me real quick and he's standing there kind of leaning over listening to what i'm saying and uh he said he asked me afterwards he said what are you telling your people so i explained to him just briefly and he laughed and shook his head and said no that's not true that's not true well we got a little bit further into the uh, into the trip and so we stopped at a rest stop for one place we were on our way to a, another out of the way place that had to do with Moses and the crossing of the Red Sea. And so we stopped there at the at the thing and uh, and he and I had been talking along with another guy on the bus for about an hour about some of these things. And their big con- their big complaint about Moses and uh, and the Jews, the Hebrews being in Israel, in uh, Egypt, uh, as far as the Bible account was, was that they people always attributed their national monuments, the, the pyramids and all that stuff as being built by the Hebrews. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible just said that they made brick. Now, to me, it wouldn't make sense to make your enemy, your slaves, the ones that really wanted to, wanted to do you in, put them in charge of building your national monuments. I mean, I'm glad America doesn't hire terrorists to build, rebuild the, the World Trade Center. At least I don't think they are. <laughs> but you see the point. And so that's their big deal. They said, "Well, you think that 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 that, Mo, that uh, Joseph and the and the the Jews built the pyramids?" I said, "Well, no, I don't think that at all. I don't know that." He said, "You don't think that?" And I said, "No, we don't know that at all. You don't think Moses and and the Pharaoh were brothers and stuff like the Hollywood movies?" So, and I said, "Well, the Bible doesn't tell us that. We don't know that. I mean, I guess it's possible, but it wouldn't make sense to me on some level." So once they found out that I wasn't trying to take their their, their national sense of pride away, then they were really open to some things that we had to say. But finally, after about an hour, he just shook his head and said, Oh, no, that's just ridiculous. That's just foolish. He said, I'll prove it to you. So he picked up his phone. He said, I'm, I'm, uh, my wife works for the, uh, the curator of the Cairo Museum, which is, if you know anything about this stuff, that is big, big top shelf stuff. So he said, He is the, the, the foremost guy, the most knowledgeable guy in, 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 uh, uh, Egyptian artifacts and archaeology and stuff like that. I'll get you to tell, I'll tell him what you told me, and he'll tell you just just how foolish this is. So he's, here we are on the rest stop, he and I stay on the bus, and he's there, and he's laughing it up, you know, oh, you won't believe this nutcase I've got, giving it to our own. And he's talking in Arabic, so I don't know what he's saying. You know, who knows what he's calling me. But anyway, all of a sudden, he just stops, like somebody slapped him with a wet dish rag. He's been talking 90 miles an hour before that, and all of a sudden he stops. Now, I can hear on the phone somebody else is talking, but it's in Arabic, too. I wouldn't know what it was even if I could distinguish the words. And so after about five minutes, he's listening, and he's nodding his head, you know, not saying anything, but nodding his head to whatever's being told him. He said, he hands me the phone. He said, he wants to talk to you. I thought, well, unless he speaks English, this isn't going to work. I said, well, why? What did he say? He said, he said, it's possible. Talking about Joseph being imitant. He said, it's possible. And that rocked his world. I mean, that upended everything that he thought was and was not and all this stuff. So I set, got on the phone with the other guy and he did speak English. And so he and I had a conversation for the remainder of the time that we spent at the rest stop, which our guide made sure wasn't real long. But we talked about the possibility of this stuff. Joseph's got to be there somewhere. And apparently... If this uh, information is true uh, from Egyptian history, apparently some 100 or 200 years after Joseph dies, when Egypt is is still holding or begins to hold the children of Israel as slaves, they deify Imhotep. They start praying to him for, for health and healing and so forth. So this plague of boils was a judgment against all these gods that had anything to do with health and disease. That's over in Exodus chapter 9. And this time it says the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the balls. In other words, God is not only proving it that he's the most high God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He's not only showing judgment upon their gods, but upon those that are representations of their gods to the people. So, folks, you need to understand something. God's not passing judgment. He's not doing bad things to people just because he decided that he didn't like these folks. He's executing judgment on those that choose to stand fast with gods that are the enemy of the God of Israel. Now, let me ask you a question. If somebody dies without accepting Jesus, what happens to them? Don't they go to hell? Isn't that the exactment of judgment? Now, why? Is it because God wants people to go in hell? I mean, he planned for hell, and so you might as well have people go there. No. Hell was not designed for man. Hell was designed as the place of judgment for Satan. So man going to hell is God's executing judgment on Satan and their choice not to separate themselves from the enemy of God. And that's exactly what's happening here with the ten plagues. That's exactly what's happening here with the ten plagues. God didn't take any pleasure in killing these people. God didn't take any pleasure in bringing these disasters upon these people. He's showing these people. He's giving them an opportunity to see and make no bones about it. It's a lot better to have the chance to see while you're here on the earth than to find out after it's done. Some people have a hard time with the New Testament where Paul said that he turned somebody over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Notice it was Satan that destroyed the flesh. That their spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. It's better to have your flesh destroyed here on the earth so that you can spend eternity in heaven because the, the, the destruction turns your decision Away from being joined together with the enemy, Satan, to giving your heart to Jesus. That's a whole lot better than spending an eternity in hell. Are you with me? Now these, uh, these last, uh, well there's, there's uh, six plagues that have taken place so far. Turn with me over to Exodus chapter 9. I want you to read this with me. Many Bible historians or, or scholars, however you want to identify people, see a, a, a separation in the way that these plagues were um, meted out. There were three, and then the, the, the first three, the, the, uh, what was it, the, um, the blood, the frogs, and the lice or the gnats, were kind of low level stuff. Uh, that they're high enough level for me that would not be enough to get my attention but nevertheless they were low level compared to the others. The, fifth, the fourth one was the flies the fifth one was the death of livestock and the sixth one was the, the, the plague of boils they're, they kind of step it up a little bit but, uh, but then the, the seventh, eighth and ninth are the most severe and this is what I want you to see in Exodus chapter 9 beginning in verse... Uh, and yeah, verse 13 and the Lord said unto Moses rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say unto him thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews let my people go that they may serve me for I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart. Did you notice that? What's God trying to do? He's trying to change Pharaoh's heart. Now. If God is sovereign and God is supreme and God can do anything and everything that he wants to do, like a lot of people say, why didn't God just stop hardening his heart like they think and change it that way? Well, I guess the same question could be asked today. If God can do anything and everything that he wants to, then why didn't he change everybody's heart to get saved? The Bible says it's the will of God for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And if God is sovereign and God is supreme like the church teaches, so much of the church world teaches... Why didn't he just change people's hearts? Why didn't he just make everybody get saved? I could understand God changing a person's will that way a lot more than I can understand God bringing tragedy on somebody to destroy their life or destroy their kids or something like that so that they would learn something according to the doctrine of so much of the church. Who wants to serve a God that will kill you? Serve me or else? That doesn't line up with what the Bible says. The Bible says it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. Not the or else part of God. Now there is an or else part of God. There is a receive Jesus or else. But God doesn't look at you and see you as a baby and say, Well, they're never going to accept him, so I'm going to kill him now. He gives them every opportunity, time after time after time. Opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to receive Jesus. He'll send people in a miraculous way to, to preach the good news to somebody. To influence them for good. Doesn't he? Well, if God's sovereign, why did not he just change everybody's idea and get everybody saved? I mean, if he wants to show himself to be God, if, that, if that's his purpose, if he's just trying to prove everybody how powerful he is, wouldn't that be a great way to do it? I mean, you'd have heaven populated with people saying, I didn't want to receive, but he made me. Man, he's powerful. I know that's silly, but that's the way it would be, isn't it? That's not what he does. Again, verse 13, or verse 14, For at this time I will send all my plagues upon thine heart and upon thine servants. Now, there comes a point where the servants finally say, Pharaoh, why are you putting up with this Moses any longer? Let's get this done. They change. First it's the magicians. They say this is a finger of God. Later it's the servants. They say look. We need to listen to what's going on here. This is really outside of our control. For I will at this time. Send all my plagues upon thine heart. And upon thine servants. And upon thy people. Notice three groups God's trying to reach. Pharaoh. His servants. Meaning his advisors. Those that are closest to him. And then thirdly the people too. Apparently everybody hadn't turned yet. It hadn't gotten bad enough for them to repent. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon thine heart and upon thy servants and upon thy people. Notice the last phrase that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now, who's God in competition with? The gods of Egypt. He's saying, I want you and your servants and all the people to know that the gods that they worship. Are nothing in comparison to me. That's what all this is about. It's not about killing Egyptians. It's not about God showing himself. In some way that brings judgment upon the people. It's about God showing. That he is the creator of the universe. The most high God. That's what all of this was about. It's what it was about then. It's what it's about now. It's what we're supposed to remember. From these things that happened. Thousands of years ago. Verse 15, for now I will stretch out my hand that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence and that thou shalt be cut off from the earth. Pharaoh could easily say, wait, 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 hold on just a second. Let's stop this right now. We don't need the seventh or the sixth. What is the Seventh plague. We don't need the seventh plague or anything else you're planning. We have learned our lesson. Why don't we let the children of Israel go? Now. Maybe this begs a question. Maybe we need to back up and go a little bit bigger picture with this. Why would God care about doing this? Why would God care about showing himself to be stronger than the gods of Egypt? Why didn't he just do this in a different way and show himself stronger than than the God of the Amorites? Or the Hittites or the Canaanites or, or any of the other people that Israel is going to run into? What's such a big deal about the gods of Egypt? Because, folks, you need to understand, God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And their seed. And he said to Abraham. It started with Abraham. I will bless them that bless thee. And curse them that curse thee. Egypt didn't start off cursing Israel. When Joseph went into. uh, uh, Well well, when Jacob. And his uh, Joseph's family. Came into. um, Egypt. Joseph or Jacob. I'm sorry I keep getting these mixed up. Jacob was 130 years old. They weren't prisoners. They were given the land of Goshen because it was the best land. It's the land, if you look at some of the ancient maps, it's the land that's up there close to where the delta is. It's the most irrigated land, and so it would grow the best crops. They weren't given the jump desert land down in the bottom of the, of the territory. They were given the best because Joseph was honored, and this is Joseph's family. But as they began to multiply, as they began to prosper, like God said that they would as a part of the Abraham's promise and covenant, when they began to multiply... Now Joseph has been dead for a long time. The pharaohs that knew Joseph have been dead for a long time. And so they say these people are getting more, more numerous than we are. We need to keep them in a place where they can't take control of us. Now if you, if you impose Egypt upon the United States, put it in the middle of the United States. Egypt is a territory that's about the size of Nebraska, um, Kansas, Oklahoma, and maybe Missouri. It's about a four-state territory right there in the middle of, the, of, the, uh, uh, of the, the center of the country, flyover country. If you identify the population of Egypt at the time, it's probably somewhere around 6 million people because we, the estimates, best estimates that I've seen uh, made about the people that came out of Egypt, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt was probably about 2.5 million people. Well, if you double that, you've got 5 million people. If they're concerned about the population and have been concerned about the population for some time, I'm thinking it's a conservative estimate that two and a half is about half the population, maybe more than that. So you've got a population of about 5 million people, which is the population of Missouri itself. So it's not like these are big cities and and everybody's everywhere and like we're used to in metropolitan areas and stuff like that. You've got a, a wide territory that's in what we would think of sparsely populated if you spread the population of missouri out into the four states that i mentioned missouri kansas uh, nebraska and, and oklahoma everybody had plenty of room and so that's kind of what we're dealing with that's kind of the situation uh that was that existed in the day that these things happened. So when God says. I'm uh, verse 15 again. For now I will stretch out my hand. That I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence. That thou shall be cut off from the earth. And in this very deed. For this cause have I raised thee up. Why did God raise up Pharaoh? God says I'm the one that puts you in here. Now that's hard for us to accept. Why would God put an evil king. In position. For this cause I have raised thee up. For to show in thee my power. Oh yeah. But see Pastor Mike. That's saying. That's telling us. That God made Pharaoh's heart hardened. So he could do these big things. Why? God didn't have to harden Pharaoh's heart for this. God could have done these things. Without destroying anybody. God could have done these things. To show that he's stronger than each one of these gods. He could have taken them down the list. One by one and ticked them off. He didn't have to do it this way. This is, this is the way that's being done because of Pharaoh's decision, not because of God's decision. God just saw from the beginning that this is the way it was going to go. I can't imagine that any Pharaoh would have taken much of a different position, much different actions, because every Pharaoh thought they were gods. This Pharaoh is probably. Um, Tutankhamun, uh, not what I'm trying to say. This pharaoh is probably the IV or Amenhotep third. Those are interchangeable terms in, in uh, the Egyptian king's list. This is probably who that guy is. His father was the greatest military leader that they've ever known. Their forefathers, Ramses, was the greatest builder. And so a lot of these things are already in place. A lot of these great historic... Uh, monuments and sphinxes and stuff like that are already in place at this time, which would make sense because Egypt never rose to power again after the time of the exodus. Egypt did have a hard time building the sphinx now, much less in this day or after after the exodus takes place. So what other pharaoh would have operated differently? What pharaoh would have given up the position? And I can kind of understand this guy's place Who's going to stand up and say, well, I'm not really the God that I've been saying that I am. But hey, keep giving me your tax money. That's kind of a tough position to take. I've seen that in much lesser issues, the same position. I've seen ministers that would not change what they believed, wouldn't change what they taught because they weren't willing to admit that they were wrong. Even after seeing, even after seeing the power of God in operation, they wouldn't turn around and say, well, yeah, I guess God still does that nowadays because they wouldn't admit they were wrong. That would be the admission that Pharaoh was making. So he said, and in very deed for this cause have I raised thee up for to show in thee my power and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. Notice what God's intent is for my name to be declared throughout all the earth. Instead of whose. Well, the rest of the world doesn't give a whit about the gods of Egypt. That's just for the Egyptian people. But the rest of the world considers Pharaoh to be the most powerful ruler on the face of the earth. So the seventh plague comes along. It's hail mingled with fire. It was an attack against Nut, the sky goddess. I think that's aptly named. Osiris, the crop fertility god, and Seth, the storm god. In Exodus chapter 9, this is something that's never happened before. There's been, there's been hailstorms, it's been rare, but there's been hail before, but not mingled with fire. And what does it do? It destroys the crops. We have an economic breakdown, folks, not only of the, the, through the Nile River, not only through the, lo, the, the gnats, the flies, the uh, frogs, and all the, the results of these things. Now it's in a direct attack on the crops. The fishing industry is gone now the crops are being destroyed the eighth plague was the locust. it again focused on those three because it's coming from the sky they're used to locusts or they've seen locusts before but not something else now why did god do the the hail mingled with the fire and the locusts there's got to be a separation of time here because it talks about how that the hail mingled with fire destroyed certain crops but it didn't destroy others why? Because it hadn't grown up yet. So apparently a period of time goes by before the eighth plague because then the locusts come and eat up the rest of the crops that weren't destroyed by the hail and fire. God is showing the people, He's hitting them where it hurts. He's hitting them in the pocketbook. He's showing them the gods you're worshiping aren't taking care of you. There would be no harvest because of this through the eighth plague. There would be no harvest in Egypt for that year. The ninth plague is darkness. It was aimed at the sun god, Amun-Ra, who was symbolized by Pharaoh himself. Pharaoh uh, Pharaoh's symbol was, uh, was the sun. And so there's a lot of times where the, the pictures and the stone carvings and stuff like that show Pharaoh with the sun behind him or the sun off to the side of him. Because even the sunlight which brings forth the crops and so forth is considered to be at the, the good grace of Pharaoh. So what does God do? He blacks out the sun. But not for the, not for the Israelites. They've got light. And it talks about a darkness that can be felt. They recognized Everybody that was under this thing recognized this is not just nighttime. This is not an eclipse. This is not something that's just covering the sun like a cloud would. This is darkness that can be felt. This is a supernatural thing. Finally, the last plague was not just against the supreme God of Egypt, which was Pharaoh, which was the death of the firstborn, but also against the future Pharaoh, this son, the very next God of Egypt. Now, the thing that's interesting about this is the what, uh, what was foretold. Let me see if I can find it real quick. I didn't write it down in my notes. Let me see if I can find it. Um, yeah, it's in chapter 11, verse 4 and 5. Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, About midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon his throne, even until the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the mill. And notice the last phrase of verse 5, And all the firstborn of beasts. That's significant, because when Pharaoh identifies himself as God, and the next Pharaoh, his son, is, is of the lineage of God, the real God, our God, says, Pharaoh will die just like a cattle will die. Pharaoh will die just like the firstborn of an animal. The animal kingdom will die. There's nothing unique, there's nothing special, there's nothing godlike about Pharaoh whatsoever. That's the real prophecy. That's the real significance of this because it shows, finally, the ineptness, the ineptness, the lack of power that Pharaoh has to guard his own house. And it shows that his son dies just like the beast of the field. No matter what claims are made about his deity or anything else. That's the judgment against Amun-Ra. Now that brings us to the Red Sea crossing. The importance of the parting of the Red Sea. I, I know what time it is. I'm, I'll cover this real quick. The importance of the parting of the Red Sea. is that this one event is the final act. in God's delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. It's the single greatest act of salvation in the Old Testament. It's continually mentioned in the Scripture, calling to represent God's saving power. They're immortalized in the Psalms in many many places, different places. Psalm 66, verse 6 says, He turned the sea into dry land, and they went through their flood on foot, and there did we rejoice in Him. Psalm 78, verse 13, He divided the sea and caused them to pass through, and He made the waters to stand as a heap. Psalm 106, verses 9 and 10, He rebuked the Red Sea also, and it was dried up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. And he saved them from the hand of him that hated them and redeemed them from the hand of his enemy. Psalm 136 verses 13 through 15. To him which divided the Red Sea into parts for his mercy endureth forever. And made Israel to pass through the midst of his for his mercy endureth forever. But overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea for his mercy endureth forever. Now turn with me over to Exodus chapter 14. I want you to see a couple of verses here. I'm going to start in verse 1, read down through verse 4. And the Lord spake unto Moses saying, this is after they've come out of Egypt, this is after they've spoiled the Egyptians. It talks about being led by the pillar of fire um, at night and the cloud by day. And the Lord spake unto Moses saying, speak unto the children of Israel that they turn and encamp between, before some place between Migdal and the sea over against some other place before it shall encamp by the sea. Forgive me for not making a fool of myself trying to say things I don't know how to say. But God tells him where to go. God speaks specifically to Moses. Go to this place. Into this spot. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel. They are entangled in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Now here's the final judgment that's exercised by God against Pharaoh himself. He's wiped out all their gods. Now he's taking on Pharaoh as a military leader. Before this point, Pharaoh has had nothing to fight against because they've all been nature, miracles of nature. Now he thinks he's got a military opportunity. And again, Pharaoh's army is the greatest military force on the face of the earth. He's the greatest military leader that the world knows at that point in time. They defeated everybody. The kingdom of Egypt has been spread to the greatest lengths that it ever was in their history, mostly through this Pharaoh's father. But nevertheless... He's in a position where he's in in the, 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 they're the superpower of the world. And now he thinks that he's got a military opportunity. So God is going to do away with Pharaoh and his army once and for all. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are entangled in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart that he shall follow after them. And I will be honored upon Pharaoh. Please notice that. I will be honored upon Pharaoh. The last thing that God is. Executing judgment on. He's already taken care of the nine gods. Now he's executing judgment on Pharaoh himself. I will be honored upon Pharaoh and upon all his host, his army, in other words, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So Pharaoh comes out after them. Verse 9, Egyptians pursued after them all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh and his horsemen and his army and overtook them by encamping by the sea beside these places. And then they cried out unto Moses, what are we going to do? And Moses answers, verse 13, Moses said unto the people, fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he, will show you to, to which he will show to you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. Now, how does Moses know that? Well, Moses knows that Pharaoh said before the last plague, Pharaoh said, if I ever see you again, you're going to die. And Moses said, well, you have well said, for you will see my face no more. So Moses knows if Pharaoh has set himself against him and comes face to face with him, Pharaoh is toast. So Moses interprets that to be God's deliverance. Now, please understand what I'm saying here. Moses has seen miracle after miracle. If we went back and looked at the first couple of chapters of Exodus, we'd see that Moses started off with God speaking to him in the burning bush by saying, how can I do this? And God says, well, I'll be with you. Yeah, but, but the people won't listen to me. He said, well, okay, I'll give you Aaron. Yeah, but but how will I know? Well, throw your stick down turn it into a snake. Moses ran from the snake when he threw it down. Moses does not seem like the great military leader that he probably was before he fled at age 40 from Egypt. Now, if Moses was raised in the house of Pharaoh, if Moses was raised as a royal, even though he was a foreigner would have no claim to the throne whatsoever, he would certainly be used... In military procedures and so forth. And there is historical evidence, um, not clear cut, not, it's not enough to satisfy everybody, but there's, uh, there's uh, evidence that may point to Moses as having been a great general before he fled at age 40. If so, this Pharaoh would know that Moses has done the most foolish military thing that you could possibly do by getting yourself to where you're pinned in on three sides. One side by Pharaoh's army, two sides by mountains, and then the, the seat of your back. This would be just the, the stupidest military move you can make. So Moses has seen the miracles. He's seen the wonders. He's seen the greatness of God. He's figured out how Pharaoh is. He came to the point early on, well, during the, the midst of the, the plagues, he says, well, even though you say you're going to let us go, I know you're lying, and so forth. Now Moses sees this situation turns to the people and says don't worry God won't leave you stranded you will see the salvation of the Lord today God will save you today and then he says in verse 14 the Lord shall fight for you and you shall hold your peace and the Lord said unto Moses wherefore cryest thou unto me So apparently there's a missing part here. Apparently after Moses speaks to the people, speaks with great confidence, said, don't worry, God will fight for you. You won't see this army again after today. God will deliver you. Then he turns around to God and says, okay, what now? Now, 30-something years ago, I read um, a sermon by John G. Lake that was called Moses' Rebuke. It's since, at that time, it was just a, a part of the, the, uh, the unpublished sermons that uh, Wilford Wright uh, gave to Brother Hagen. Uh, that were, Wilford Wright was the son-in-law of John G. Lake. He was married to Lake's daughter. And, uh, and I read this sermon. I got a copy of these things. They've since been published, and I would recommend you getting um, a book that has these things in because they're outstanding sermons. But I read this one. And, and the title just drew my attention. I mean, I was looking through them, thumbing through some of the different ones and saw the title. And I thought, wow, what is that? I don't know what that is. And and, and if I had ever read this verse of Scripture or read this passage of Scripture, it, I hadn't spent enough time on it for it to make any sense to me or given any thought to it or anything else. But when I started reading this sermon, it intrigued me and it has intrigued me ever since. Because it would seem, I'm just talking Person to person here. It would seem like crying out to God at a point where you're in real trouble. I mean, God, it's you come through or we're out. This is an or else moment for us. You've got to come through with your power or else we're done for. It would seem that would be the perfect opportunity to talk to God about what's going to happen and how is it going to go. Wouldn't it? Yet God rebukes him. He said, what are you crying out unto me for? And it's troubled me, it used to trouble me, it doesn't anymore, but it troubled me year after year after year. And I'm just now coming to the place where I understand this. I am just now coming to the place where I understand that God intended for Moses to be so sure from seeing the same miracles, working the same miracles that, that Pharaoh and the others saw... From seeing and experiencing these things he expects Moses to understand that his salvation for his people his plan of salvation and what he will accomplish for his people is so complete that if you come to the place where there's no way out except through the water then part the doggone water. You don't have to talk to me about parting the water part it. That's the only thing that makes sense to me. That's the only thing that I can use to explain this. So he says to Moses, Why cries thou unto me, speaking to the children of Israel that they go forward? Where? Into the mountain? Into Pharaoh's army or into the sea? But lift up your rod first and stretch out thine hand over the sea and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go over on dry ground to the midst of the sea. He's saying to Moses, Do you not understand me yet? The miracles are intended to communicate to you that I am the God of the universe. You've seen me make lice from dust. You've seen me turn water into blood. You've seen hail mixed with fire, which has never happened before. You've seen darkness come upon the earth when the sun is out for your people. A darkness that can be felt. Do you not understand, Moses? I'll do whatever I have to do for my people. And remember, it all goes back to Abraham. Abraham. I'll bless them that bless you. Curse them that curse you. A lot of people think that's still the, the, the case today where Israel's concerned. Folks, Israel doesn't have that covenant anymore. A lot of people are afraid that, is, that America's going to do the wrong thing because Israel's always right. Israel's not always right. Now, I think they're right about 95% of the time. But from what I can see, Israel wants to give away some of the West Bank. That's not right. That's contrary to what God said the the land belonged to, who the land belongs to. So just because Israel says something doesn't mean that they're right and everybody else has to line up. That's not the covenant that we have today. The only covenant that exists on the earth today with God is through Jesus. Now, he still has a plan for Abraham, and he still has a plan to deliver Abraham after the church is gone, or Abraham meaning Israel. still has a plan to deliver Israel after the church is gone. But, folks, I'll bless them that bless you. belongs to the church, not to Israel. If so, if it still belongs to Israel, then there's two covenants out there. Well, there's not. So what's the significance of this thing with Moses? And folks, please, this is what I'm trying to get to for the whole service. With what God said to Moses, what are you crying out to me for? Do you not understand that my salvation is so complete that if it takes part in water, then part the water? Turn with me over to John chapter 14. Now, we know that the Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea, has a, is symbolic of the believer's identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that we're baptized under Moses just like they were baptized under Moses in the cloud. In the same way we're baptized under Christ. It's a type of salvation. It's a type of passing out of death and into life. But here's the thing that I want you to see. John chapter 14. Jesus said beginning in verse 12. Verily, verily, I say unto you. He that believeth on me. The works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do. Because I go unto my Father. Please notice verse 13 and 14. And. Because you're in Christ. That's what believing in his name means. Because you're in Christ. And whatsoever you shall ask. The word ask means call for, require, demand. Literally whatever you shall speak into being. Whatever you shall call for, require demand, in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, if you shall ask, call for, require demand, if you shall speak anything in my name, I will do it. P.C. Nelson was the foremost Greek scholar in his day. I think he died in the 1930s. But anyway, he said, uh, uh, in, in speaking about this, Brother Hagin said, uh, well, no, I guess he died in the 40s because Brother Hagen was in some of his... Uh, uh, meetings, He said that there was a meeting that uh, Brother Nelson had, and somebody asked him about this verse of Scripture because uh, Dr. Nelson would, would preach out of the Greek New Testament. And, uh, and so he would, he would preach out of the New Testament, and so much of what he would preach, he would say, here's what this means. Here's how this translates into English. And so after the service, one of the uh, the ministers that was there uh, asked in the presence of the others about this uh, John 14, 14. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. And here's what he, P.C. Nelson said. Brother Hagen said he heard him say this himself. P.C. Nelson said, Well, it doesn't really translate very well into the English, but here's what it means. It's God saying, If you ask anything in my name, if I don't have it, I'll make it. That's how specific this is. If you ask, call for, require demand, speak anything into existence that I don't have, I'll make it for you. That's how far it goes. That's Moses' rebuke. It's God saying to Moses, don't you understand who I am yet? Don't you understand that my salvation, my plan for my people is so complete that whatever is necessary to take place, I will do it. So part the Red Sea. God didn't even say he'll do it. We know it was God's power. But Moses is the one that activates that power. And God seems to be getting on to him. Because he even has to ask God about. What the, the next step of the plan is. Before he takes it, takes it on himself to do it. So what does that tell us? If Moses was a servant of God. And you're a child of God. What is God waiting for you to do? He's waiting for you to use your authority. In the name of Jesus. To do whatever it takes. Now. What does this mean to us? If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. If I don't have it, I'll make it for you. Unless the doctor says you've got cancer. Unless you get behind on your house payments. Unless they're laying off on your job. Unless the devil tells you otherwise. Unless churches preach against it. Etc., 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 folks. I want you to see yourself in a certain way. I want you to realize that the miracles that God did against the gods of Egypt are to show you that there is no other God, including Satan, the God of this world, that is equal with your heavenly Father. There is nothing that the enemy has ever done, there's no attack that the enemy can ever bring, there is nothing. That outstrips God's power. And remember what God said as truly as I live, the whole earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. That would include you as long as you're on the earth, wouldn't it? And the glory he's talking about is whatever miracles are necessary to show that God is greater. So, what's Jesus' instruction to you? The same as God's instruction to Moses standing at the edge of the Red Sea. What are you crying out to me for? You're my child. I've been giving you authority. You stretch out the symbol of your authority. In your case, it's the name of Jesus. You don't have a rod. You don't have a stick to hold out. But you do have a big stick to use. It's called the name of Jesus. That name of Jesus is not just some magic charm that we use when we need it. That name of Jesus signifies that you are one with God in Christ. That God's your father. You're part of his family. As a family member... You can stand there and part whatever sea, whatever obstacle, whatever problem is facing you. And that's why the Bible says that God has made us more than conquerors. A more than a conqueror means somebody that has the results of the conquering without having to fight the fight. Whatsoever you shall ask in my name, I will do it. If I don't have it, I'll make it for you. Oh, but Lord, there's no way out. How many times have we come to that place in our situations? But Lord, there's no way out. We owe too much money. We've had this health condition too long. Whatever it is. How many times has the devil spoken into our ears saying, yeah, but it's too late for you. Maybe if it had been at another time. Maybe if the circumstances were different. But not for you. Not now. Not in this case. God said, if I don't have it, I'll make it for you you know what that means? That means if it is too late, he'll turn the clock back. That means if the situation, the circumstance is such that it can't happen, then he'll change the circumstance. That means nothing is impossible for you because you're in Christ. You've got something that's worth a whole lot more than that rod that Moses stretched out. And Moses just holding out that stick, holding out that stick created the miracle that signifies the greatest act of God's deliverance in the Old Testament. You don't think you've got something better than that? You do. Whatsoever you shall ask in my name. And remember, asking is not praying. It's not begging God to do something. Moses isn't begging God to do anything. And God doesn't say, you do it and I'll do it. He just says, Moses, do it. Why? Because God backs you up on whatever you do. When you do it in the name of Jesus. Jesus. Greater is He that's in me than He that's in the world. Why? Because I'm in Christ, not because I'm some hot shot, not because I've got something special that somebody else doesn't have, but because we're in Christ. So greater is He that's in us than He that's in the world. I wonder how many people are going to get to heaven, and God's going to show them. It was just like you were standing at the edge of the Red Sea. All you had to do is go forward. Why didn't you go? Well, we were too busy praying. We were waiting on you to answer us. Folks, he's already answered you. Jesus answered you. Whatever you ask for in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you, Father, that you are the God that doeth miracles. We'll not be like those in the Old Testament that saw your miracles or even read of the reports of them, but then listen to the enemy. Listen to the voice of the enemy instead. But rather, Father, we will hearken unto your word. The word that says whatsoever we call for in your name, you will do it. If you don't have it, you'll make it for us. Oh, thank you, Father, that nothing is too hard for you. And nothing is impossible to them that believe. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' precious name. That the greater one lives in us. The one that's greater than sickness. The one that's greater than disease. The one that's greater than poverty and lack. The greater one lives on the inside of us. And when we call for that which we need. Though it may look to us like it looked to Moses at the edge of the Red Sea. We'll go forward, Father. Knowing that the glory of the Lord is our rear guard. Knowing that the sea will part in front of us. We love you, Lord. We thank you, Father, that you still do miracles. You'll do one for us whenever we need one. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Say it with me. The greater one. Lives in me. I shall not be afraid. Of any of the work of the enemy. Or anything he says. I shall not doubt. But shall hearken. To the voice of God's word. Nothing. Is impossible with me. Because I'm in Christ. And I'm a believer in His name. Amen.